the United States Central Intelligence Agency is a civilian foreign intelligence service established by the National Security Act of 1947. The CIA has seen and heard a lot in its more than seven decades, but its subjects, methods, and files remain shrouded in secrecy. Until now. Secret CIA tapes. January 1962, backroom Miami nightclub. Garganelli crime family hang out the Copa. There was a three-way turf war in those days between the Garganellis, the Orecchiettis, and the Papardellis. Roll the tape. Look, it's easy. You poison his communion waiver. He's already poisoned. <laughs> That's a good one, Jimmy. The Catholic Church is too dirty for us to work with, though. They, they, they can't be bought. They do keep secrets good, though. Okay, here, here this idea out. Maybe we get that blonde with the loose lips. You mean Marilyn Monroe? She's got magic eyes. Forget her eyes, Tony. She's got Betty Davis thighs. Tender rump roast and a spicy pair of breast meats. Lousy Mick will Jackie O in his khakis when she puts on the moves. I'm interested. First we kill his reputation, but how do we turn her? It's simple. We already did. She owes money to Salvatore Tortoloni, one of our guys down in San Diego. Okay. I'm in, but I want our best guys on this. Call up Bucatini, Capoletti, and Big Orzo. Tell them to meet Sal Dente at the place. The water's already boiling. <laughs> All we gots to do is add the salt. You're listening to Bricolage. Truth, comedy, politics. With your host, Lev. In this episode of Bricolage, we'll meet a controversial Texas doctor, learn a new Russian folk song, and get to talk to the author of a recent award-winning book about American sports stadiums, plus trivia with Josh Ellis. But first, sponsors! This episode of Bricolage is brought to you by Rafi Cohen's outstanding nonfiction book, The Arena, which has a subtitle longer than Melania's Grounds for Divorce. It's a work the New York Times book review called, quote, smart, readable, deeply reported and researched, engagingly personal, funny, and often surprisingly poignant. The Arena, now available in paperback. Also by the old guy in the locker room at the gym who's always naked. His testicles look like two grapes that fell behind a couch in 1979 and you can't stop looking at them. Aging, it just might happen to you. With Josh Ellis. Now here's the question. A dozen different biopics have won Best Picture at the Academy Awards, but only two of those, one from 1970, the other from 2001, were about Americans. What were the titles of those films, and which famous Americans were the subjects of those films? Once again, a dozen different biopics have won Best Picture at the Academy Awards, but only two of those, one from 1970, the other from 2001, were about Americans. What were the titles of those films, and which famous Americans were their subjects?
Rafi Cohen is the author of The Arena, Inside the Tailgating, Ticket Scalping, Mascot Racing, Dubiously Funded, and Possibly Haunted Monuments of American Sport, which was recently named to Penn America's Shortlist for Literary Sports Writing, and he's also an old friend. Rafi, how's it going? Rafi, how are you? Lev, great to be here with you, buddy. Oh, it is so good to have you. You are the first person who will appear on Bricolage, who also appeared on my other podcast. Go for Gaijin. That's right. And I understand that was the... the deep f- cut. Yeah, that's right. In so far as people <laughs> deeply cut themselves when being forced to listen. And also the reference to seppuku, perhaps, the Japanese ritual suicide. So I definitely want to talk about the book. <laughs> Not that I'm like a great interviewer or anything, but this is the first time I've interviewed somebody on Bricolage who has written a book that I have actually read. Oh, quite an honor. So the book is chock full of stories. I genuinely, sincerely recommend it to the two or three people that are listening to this shitty podcast. Hi, Lev's mom. What is the best story you couldn't tell in the book or didn't tell in the book that you can tell on this podcast? I wouldn't say there was any story that I couldn't tell in the book, but there were definitely some some gems that just came out you know, during editing, whether due to space or just you know because of particular narrative arcs and chapters that didn't fit the bill. One is, and actually because, Lev, you were one of my first readers during the writing process for the first and second chapter. Yeah, that's right. And I don't recall getting paid for that, but that's must must <laughs> check must be in the mail. Yeah, or college credit. If you, uh, oh, okay. yeah, you can earn college credit. You may have read about this because it might have been in an early draft. But at AT AT&T Stadium in Dallas, where the Cowboys play. That's Jerry World. Jerry World, to those in the know. I received a behind-the-scenes tour from their director of engineering, a guy named Scott Woodrow. And, you know, one of the things that I kept asking him was, what are, like, the weird quirks of this building? You know, everyone sees this pristine, beautiful, every detail was considered from the, you know, from the marble tile to the, you know, the materials and the elevator buttons. Like, yeah. what's the weird the colostomy shit bag for Jerry Jones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, all of the most important details. Every, yeah, it, only the finest silk for the colostomy bag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to know, like, what's the weird stuff behind the scenes that no one can see that, like, maybe, you know, was an oversight? And, I mean, he, he told me there was some stuff like, you know, like the boiler rooms are like weirdly inaccessible and it's uh, whatever. And it wasn't that exciting. But then he did eventually tell me not something that's like weird behind the scenes actively now, but just a test that they went through before opening called okay. it was basically a drainage test. And what they did is they turned on every faucet in the building and flushed every toilet at the same time. It was for a test that they called the super flush. What they did was they got about 5,000 gallons of water per minute, you know, draining on either side of the stadium at once. It's just insane. It's like one of the world's most powerful toilets, that building. So they figured they were good to go. You know, this building is the super flush. Truly, it passes the test. And yet, when the building opened, there were weird smells in the building. Clogs from the the pipes in, in the cooking areas and also weirdly in the luxury suites there were just there were backups and and you know fecal smells unpleasant smells and you know so after the the games or the events that they were holding since they opened with a concert they went in to do the forensics and see what was going on and it turned out that the pipes were in fact backing up because folks in the luxury suites in particular were flushing their underwear down the toilet and it was just getting caught in the drain and and clogging you, it up what do you mean what why like specifically would women's underwear the men's women's although honestly they didn't actually they didn't like they didn't 
really retrieve it. They mostly just tried to, like, blast it through. This is a weird ongoing problem that I believe still will happen on occasion. Just for whatever reason, you know, folks in the luxury suites and clubs at Jerry World are in frequent need of getting rid of their underwear. Wow. Of disposing of their underwear, as Perhaps. if it were a body of some sort. Perhaps a metaphor for the cowboy's I failures. Think, I think since there the are a lot of metaphors to be made. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple excerpts from the book that I wanted to read real quick and then sort of get some more detail on. There is a scene where you're talking to some ticket scalpers in Cleveland. You're talking to a gentleman named Roses. Do you want to explain who Roses is? Do you want to cue this up? Sure. So I don't know Rose's real name, nor will I ever find out probably, but in Cleveland I was hanging out not only with the ticket scalpers, but also some of the other creatures that surround stadiums, the, the merch men and the, you know, the other hustlers, whatever, whatever their racket is. And Rose's racket was roses. After the game, you know, he would go around trying to sell individual roses to men leaving the, leaving the stadium with their, with their dates. This was his, his particular, uh, deal that night. He was not doing very well. Roses is uh Roses is homeless, had been drinking, and I uh I was just chatting with him a little bit after after a, a Cavaliers game. Really he was chatting with me. I was a little bit uh cautious of him as much as I could be. I was trying to hang out with him with a guy who goes by the name of Saxman, who is famous in Cleveland. For playing the sax. For playing the sax. Outside of Cavaliers games. And wherever. He also goes to the theater district and plays. Okay. He spent some time in New York. Is there uh, a York. large theater district in Cleveland? I apologize if I'm being <laughs> cynical as a New Yorker. You are. You're incredibly is condescending. Is my elitism showing? There is a, they, have, they have a good theater, uh, theater scene in Cleveland. Yeah, I feel like there's a Catskills era joke about the Cleveland theater theater system like I actually wanted to insert a good joke into the podcast here about Cleveland's theater system something like they say in theater the actors have to be ready for anything but in Cleveland theater the actors just have to be willing to live in Cleveland but I did some research and it turns out that Cleveland has the second largest theater system in the U.S. behind New York and then I learned that the idea of Cleveland as a punchline for anything began with Rowan and Martin's Laughing, a really influential NBC variety show that aired from 1968 to 1972 apparently the network's suits got upset with all the ethnic jokes the show kept making so one of the writers devised a solution to start going after his hometown of Cleveland instead so in that spirit here's five increasingly disturbed Cleveland jokes I found on the internet. What's the only thing that grows in Cleveland? The crime rate. What does the average student from Cleveland get on his SAT? Drool. What are the only two seasons in Cleveland? Winter and construction. What should you do if you find three people from Cleveland buried up to the neck in cement? Get more cement. And what do you call a virgin in Cleveland? An ugly 12-year-old who can outrun her brothers. Oh, boy. So this is what happens in the segment of the book that I wanted to read to our audience. Roses, roses, fresh roses. How many roses do you need? He's practically shouting. His movements are jerky as he chases after fans in the yellow glow of parking lot lamps or backpedals to stay in front of potential customers on the sidewalk. But no one wants a flower. He comes back. Roses reaches into his pocket and pulls out a knife, a gleam in his eye. Quote, this is cutthroat, man, he says, slurring his words inches from my ear. 
This is about who's eating good, who's drinking good, and who's sleeping on the street. Friendship? He said it's about friendship. Rafi, in telling the story, says he's not sure what Roses is talking about, but he nods along. Roses slides the knife along Rafi's back and holds it there. He's giving off a last grizzly before winter sort of vibe. Desperate, but I know he's telling the truth, telling his truth. Rafi, what was Roses' truth? You know, these guys who make their money outside of stadiums, if you scalp your ticket successfully, you're going home with 500 bucks in your pocket tonight. If nobody buys anything, you're making zero. And depending on how close you're living to the poverty line, how close you're living to the hunger line, I mean, this is truly make or break on a daily basis. Right. So for a guy like Roses, he feels that desperation. He feels that urgency with every sale, with every person that he's talking to. I mean, this is not an abstraction. This is not like, oh, if I have a bad day at work, you know, I'll come back tomorrow and we'll be okay. I mean, there are real consequences of whether you make a sale or not. Hey there. You a lady in Garden City, Texas? Right outside McAllen? This ad might be for you, then. Do you have an unwanted vagrant trespassing in your nethers? Are your unmentionables fixing to need mentioning? Does your rattlesnake smell funny? Howdy, I'm Dr. Colt Magic Fingers, the only licensed OBGYN in all of Glasscock County, Texas. They call me the gunslinging gyno, because the only thing I do better than diagnose vaginal problemos is shoot skate. Imagine your lady parts as a clay target flying through the air. I'ma hit them. From the front, direct. So saddle up and get in those stirrups. It's gyno time! Time for Brickerized Trivia Answers with Josh Ellis! The question was, a dozen different biopics have won Best Picture at the Academy Awards, but only two, one from 1970, the other from 2001, were about Americans. What were the titles of those films and which famous Americans were their subjects? The 1970 film was Patton, and of course starred George C. Scott playing General George Patton. In 2001, audiences were treated to Russell Crowe portraying John Forbes Nash in A Beautiful Mind. Russia. No collusion. Russia and Trump. I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Wouldn't it be great? We actually got along with Russia. There was no collusion. I didn't know the president. There was nobody to collude with. How many times do I have to answer this question? I call it the Russian hoax. Where is the collusion? The Russia story is a total fabrication. Russia is a ruse. I have nothing to do with Russia. Haven't made a phone call to Russia in years. Don't speak to people from Russia. Not that I wouldn't. I just have nobody to speak to. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Fake news. The hacking. This is a pure and simple witch hunt. All I can say is after looking for a long period of time, they found no collusion whatsoever with Russia. Believe me, there's no collusion. It's a disgraceful situation. It's a total witch hunt. I spoke to Putin twice. He called 
called me on the election and he called me on the inauguration. Good talk. Russia is fine. But I thought that President Putin was very, very strong. Fake news and the Russian witch hunt. Have you seen any Russians in West Virginia or Ohio or Pennsylvania? Преступник. This is a chapter where you went to Green Bay, to Lambeau Field, I believe, and you talk about the community of sports. You say, research by academics like Daniel Wan, who teaches at Murray State University and focuses on the psychology of sport fandom, has shown there are very real benefits to being a sports fan, including higher self-esteem and fewer feelings of depression and loneliness. According to Eric Simons, quote, the more you identify with the group, the more benefits accrue. But fans can experience negative consequences after losses, manifesting in higher rates of car wrecks, heart attacks, and domestic violence. Studies have also shown that watching sports can increase aggression. To me, that paragraph was an incredible summary microcosm of your whole book, which is like, there are so many cool things that sports does for us, and it brings us together, and how cool is this? And then also, this ugly, dirty, filthy, fetid downside. A hundred percent. I think, you know, sports stadiums and the games and the events therein just really serve as this unique lens through which to experience America, through which to experience humanity, different sections and flavors of America and humanity. And you do get all of the, you get all the good in us and all the weird in us and all the dangerous in us. You get hope and faith and tradition and family but you also get depression and sadness and hopelessness and drunkenness and boisterousness and and vulgarity and truly, you know, dangerous or threatening situations. In Green Bay, which is a place where you would never expect to see aggression, Green Bay is, is truly a magical place to go to experience a game. And there's this almost like this joyous, disbelieving vibe that surrounds Lambeau Field. Because this is a tiny town of 100,000 people, an hour and a half north of Milwaukee. It's like, why the hell do they have a football team? And yet, I basically witnessed a sexual assault inside of Lambeau Field, this place which is football Disneyland. I mentioned it in the book, in that chapter, I was chatting with uh, this man who was in from out of town with his wife, who was a Packer fan. She wanted to share this experience with him. They lived in Seattle, and she was going to the bathroom, and this guy followed her in and basically you know, went into a stall with her and had another friend with him and was just trying to be coercive, saying like, hey, honey, don't you want to, you know, don't you want to yeah. kiss? Don't you want to do whatever? I mean, obviously threatening, assaulting, and I mean, whatever he thought he was doing was so far beyond, you know, legal mm. or okay. And she responded by eventually, you know, saying to him, she rubbed his chest and said, just give me a second, I'll be right back, because there was no reasoning with him. She, He wasn't taking no for an answer. She came, comes back over to us, was incredibly, you know, rightly, understandably yeah, course, flustered, yeah. told us about the experience, and then went and got you know, security, who eventually, you know, who did, in fact, hold this guy, arrest him, brought him into custody. And the point is, is that there is this seedy underbelly. When you're dealing with 800, uh, with 80,000 people, even if there's one half of 1% right. of the people who are there with with ill intention, that's still 400 people. Right, and that's the case with, with every large event, right? Survey. It's a survey of Concerts, sample Concerts, conventions, size. anything, like, you, you deal with. It's like, I always think about it as, like, the imagine the, the worst people you went to high school with some of those people are at every large event yeah 
Yeah. It's just sample size. There's going to be yeah. people either who are just dickheads or are there trying to cause trouble. But I guess what you're getting to is, is there something innately special, the opposite of special in a good yeah, way here, about sporting events that, that feels lawless, that feels right. permissive? Right. So I think there is, and right, so I, I was sort of making one point with that, and there's a flip side to that, which is, you know, one, there is going to be an inherent population within a gathering that size yeah. that is going to cause trouble. That being said, they're not the only ones who actually cause trouble because sometimes it's the guy just next to you. It's just the dad next door who maybe had a few too much or feels this really, this energized vibe of, of 50, 80,000 people all being together and feels somehow empowered to behave in a way that he would never otherwise condone. You're talking about vulgarity? Or? Well, vulgarity or just fighting. Oh, um, there is also a kind of performative aspect to fan misbehavior. You know, the kind of, the idea that like fans want to be part of the, you know, part of the show. It's their contribution to the sport, to the game. Another example that's in the game, that's in the book, is that there was this guy at that Raiders-Packers game. He must have been, I don't know, in his 20s or 30s, tatted up, bearded, you know. He was sitting maybe two or three rows in front of me in the black hole, the infamous fan section at Oakland Raiders game. And next to me was a dad uh, with his 10-year-old son. His 10-year-old son was a Packers fan. The dad was a Raiders fan, but, you know, of course, he was just so happy to be there with his son and sharing this sharing this moment with him. And when the dad went to the bathroom at one point, this Raiders fan, a few rows down after the Raiders scored a touchdown, started talking, like, angry shit to this 10-year-old kid. I have a video of this, actually. Yeah. Where he was, like, literally, like, threatening to fight him, like, ripping off his coat and saying, Fuck you, little kid. What are you looking at? Fuck you. Fuck you, little kid. And giving him double middle fingers. This is a 10-year-old boy. And then, but after he did it, he turned around to look at his friends to see who appreciated this. Who appreciated this performance. Who was going to give him a high five. And one of his friends did. And then he continued a little bit more before he settled down and play continued. So, but there's something in that performance, mob mentality, or just sort of spurring each other on, this sort of, you know... Tribalism. Tribalism and also loss of individuality in that way. Mm. The fact that you feel like maybe, you know, if we're all looting and I steal a TV, like, did I really steal the TV or did we all steal the TV? Or like, you know, is it... Right. What, there's something there that you... You're talking about that night in 1996, by the way, Ravi, you definitely stole that TV. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about, Lev. That, that's... That's awesome. I love that explanation. And obviously it's a lot more complicated than we have time to get into on a... There's a lot of literature and theory and philosophy about this, which, yeah, which we can't do Anything you would recommend that people should read if they're interested? Yeah, The Arena? (laughs) Other than your book. (laughs) Uh, Well, Eric Simon's book, uh, which I do, I I quote a couple of times, um, is is very interesting. I I believe the title is... uh, you know, the science of sports fans. Addendum to the podcast, it's actually called The Secret Lives of Sports Fans, The Science of Sports Obsession by Eric Simons. Is there some newfound appreciation for a particular sport or player that you picked up in writing the book? Like, are you just like a massive golf fan now? Like, what, is there anything that you... 100%. I mean, one is... I have a deeper appreciation for all of these people who kind of like work in the margins of stadiums. And I'm not just talking about the external economic ecosystems. Like the grounds crew, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. The grounds. I loved that chapter. That's, Fascinating. And that's where I was going with this is the grounds crews, the mascots, all those guys, uh, the vendors. But the grounds crew in particular, I have such a deep appreciation for. Yeah. And the thing that I learned that I really didn't know was about sod farms. 
I, yeah. It's just something I never thought about, the fact that stadiums don't grow their own grass. I mean, if you spend two seconds to think about it, of course it makes perfect sense that they wouldn't grow their own grass. Willie Nelson grows his own grass. A lot I of people these days yeah, grow yeah, their yeah, own yeah. grass. Yeah. You know, but you never think, where does the grass come from? And then you, then you learn that there are specialty sod farms, some of which do nothing but grow stadium grass. And I visited one in the Redneck Riviera down in Alabama, where we spent spring break one time, actually. Actually. 2005, if I'm not 2004. mistaken. 2004. 2004. 2004. Yeah. Shockingly, my memory is hazy of that time in our lives, but I can't for the life of me imagine why that would be. Yeah. Uh, but literally that area, that is where the sod farm is that I visited. And seeing the care that goes into these, you know, into the turf, the the, the multiple year process that it takes to yeah. make a, to raise a football field or a baseball field. Seeing these fields lying next to each other, I always, I equated it to like babies in a nursery. Like, you know, they're all, they're siblings. Literally the University for Auburn, Auburn's uh, field is lying next to the to Alabama University's field. You know, they're going to grow up and become bitter rivals, but right now they're just sisters. This talk of siblings sort of took me to childhood and dreams. and That is something that I think your book did a good job of talking about, even though you weren't focused on the athletes. For a lot of the tangential people, a lot of these side economies or the people who help make the game happen, they were at their core fans of the sport from when they were a young kid that the magic of of lambo like that special connection that they felt to the players to the scene to the vibe to the experience all of that like that's what leads them to be to join the grounds crew like yeah of course they need a job they want money all of that but i i think that there's something special there and it's tied to like your youth dreams like that groundskeeper is never going to play for the Atlanta Braves. But you know what? Whenever the players kind of look at him, you know, or a fan looks at him, he sees that gleam in the young kid's eye looking at the field that he's been working on all week long. Like, you know, there's something there. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's especially the way you're describing that reminds me just of how people talk about the ushers at Wrigley Field, what they call Peter Pan syndrome. Like basically when you're in Wrigley, you never grow old. I spoke to an executive of the Red Sox who talked about a similar thing which is basically that you know the ushers and the people that work around the sports have a, a real responsibility for maintaining that magic and cultivating mm. that magic and passing that magic on when a an eight-year-old kid a 10-year-old kid comes to a game at fenway park and sees an usher who gets to work at fenway park and thinks this has to be the best job in the world right. you owe the kids but that magic I, maybe it's more real in some places and than it is in others but but you can still find it, and I think when it does exist, it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. Anything you wanted to add before uh, before I, li- I let this go? I'll tell you one more story, which didn't make the book, which was maybe the scariest thing I did throughout this whole process. I mean, even scarier than having a knife pulled on me in Cleveland, which was riding the Olympic bobsled track oh, yeah. in Park City, uh, Utah, uh, which is now open for for the public. You can you can pay to ride it. You know, I had to sign a pretty real waiver before. I'd have marked it up. <laughs> I, I wish you were there to the attorney. So I started getting nervous as they told me how fast this thing goes and the astronauts who rode on this and how they were kind of taken aback by yeah. the speed. You go down in a bobsled? Oh yeah, piloted by like a real 
Oh, Fox, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. means you go fast. As I started getting more nervous about this, we were going up the mountain, and I see a whole e- EMT crew waiting at the bottom. I'm like, that's not... Never a good sign, yeah. Not reassuring. So I went up to them to say, like, hey, you guys are just here, like, for... Yeah. Like, just to be here, right? Like, appearances, but, like, you never actually have to do anything. Like, no one ever actually gets hurt or anything like that, right? And I was there at the same time as Sundance, so, you know, there were celebrities around. In addition in to ether. famed author Rafi Cohen. Correct. The yeah. EMT guy turns to me and goes, Joey Fatone uh, rode this last year. He's taller than you think. And that was That it. was his answer and to that, your question? And, <laughs> that is awesome. And I don't know if that was meant to put me at ease, uh, if there was some sort of cryptic logic that I didn't pick up on, yeah. but it did confuse me enough to then just like go ahead and, and take the ride, which was truly scary, and I uh, emitted lots of involuntary noises throughout yeah, the ride. Yeah, I can camp. imagine. Yeah. Lots of yeah. yelps. Yeah, and then you cut the undies off at the end. And then I, I flushed the undies at yeah, the end. that's right. Awesome book, awesome guy. Rafi Kohan, the author of The Arena, a.k.a. The Kohanimal. Rafi, thanks for joining us on Bricolage. Lev, it's a pleasure. All righty. Christ-killing, godless, Satan-worshipping, six, six, six episodes done. How cool is that? I think I might be getting the hang of these, y'all. Were you offended by the Cleveland jokes? Have you ever flushed your undies? Are you a big Joey Fatone fan? Email podcastbricolage at gmail.com. I crave your attention and affection and desperately want to hear from you. This has been Bricolage, created and hosted by Lev. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Theme song, sponsor song, and trivia song written by Alex Schiff. Creative Commons attribution credits are in the text description of each episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a good review on the internet. If you didn't, then try not to be such a nag. Is this really how you want to be remembered, Julie? 